Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel, and I'm the co-host of this show. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. And today, Jim Blackburn is back on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, Many of you will recall Jim was uh, on a previous show where we talked about the Mid-Bay Option and the Speed Center and all of the work surrounding the Corps of Engineers' uh, future of protecting uh, the city of Houston and Galveston Bay. But we're not going to be talking about that today. Jim Blackburn is an amazing guy, an attorney with Blackburn and Carter in Houston, Texas, uh, co-founder of the Speed Center at Rice University, and also the subject for today's discussion. He is the co-founder and a member of the board of directors of what is called the Texas Coastal Exchange. And we're going to try to learn something about that. It's going to be a really great discussion. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. So, you know, the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are funded in part by our supporters out in the world. We've got a couple we always like to thank. Dune Doctors from Pensacola, Florida, led by Frederic Barrasset, the owner and operator of that company. They do a lot of great dune restoration work all along the Uh, Gulf of Mexico and in the Atlantic coast. If you're a homeowner, a condo owner, a neighborhood association, a city or a county, and you're going to fix your dunes, think about Dune Doctors and find them at dunedoctors.com. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Coastal Engineering Consultants, headed up by Michael Poff. Uh, they're located there in Naples, Florida, just one of the best engineering firms we've ever ever had the pleasure of working with. Uh, you can learn more about Coastal Engineering Consultants at CoastalEngineering.com. And our good friend Bill Worsham heads the Coastal Division at LJA Engineering, located here in Austin, Texas, but 28 offices in around the Gulf of Mexico. Great coastal engineering firm. If you're looking for coastal engineering services in Texas and off the Gulf, give our friend Bill Worsham a call. Find them at LJA.com. Well, Jim, uh, this is really a great subject matter for us because we have been discussing uh, carbon sequestration and carbon capture uh, with the Bureau of Economic Geology here in Austin, UT's outfit. And of course, they're doing a type of uh, geologic storage where they take uh, CO2 and they pump it into the ground. It's mechanical. Uh, But you are uh, introducing our audience for the first time to a new type of carbon sequestration. Why don't you give us a quick overview of the Texas Coastal Exchange? I'm happy to do that. The Texas Coastal Exchange is a a concept that came out of some of the non-structural flood protection work we did at the Speed Center at Rice University. And we've spun off Texas Coastal Exchange as a uh, nonprofit to see if we could actually commercialize the concept of basically storing carbon dioxide in the soil of the marshes, the prairies, and the timberlands, and in the woods of the timberlands uh, of the Texas coast. And Uh, We have started this concept uh, out of a goal of trying to protect and preserve about 2 million acres of low-lying area, uh, roughly from the southwest of Houston down to Matagorda Bay, all the way up to Sabine Lake. And uh, that 2 million acres um, arguably could be under risk of development. Certainly the prairies are. Uh, And we would like to keep that for hurricane surge uh, storage purposes. Uh, but we couldn't find anybody to pay for surge storage, and we looked for other things to 
perhaps buy and sell, and came up with the concept of carbon dioxide storage, particularly in the marshlands, and that's what we're starting with. Um, so then in a nutshell, we're basically trying to find a way to convey uh, cash to landowners for putting carbon dioxide into the soil of the marshlands. Uh, Jim, are you talking here about uh, changing what's happening on the land or simply setting aside areas that naturally absorb and secure and contain CO2? We're talking about both things. Um, we are not discriminating against uh, newly created uh, carbon storage and existing marshlands. We believe that if a landowner is putting carbon dioxide into the soil, that they should be uh, able to receive compensation for that. They're performing a service, and uh, we uh, believe that really as part of property rights that they have a right to uh, uh, receive income from that if they're doing a service for society. Uh, so on the one hand, existing marshes certainly do qualify. Uh, what we're hopeful of is that this will encourage the planting and expansion of marshes. I mean, you can do it by obviously taking uh, to, by hand, you can uh, you know take the plants and actually plant them. And that's a little slower process, but a lot of volunteers can do that. There's also commercial applications that we hope to encourage where if we create a large enough market, I may be that we might see a lot of expansion of wetlands along the Texas coast. It's a really interesting idea, Jim. And one of the things that I am eager to learn more about is how you have uh, worked out these relationships uh, with private property owners and getting them on board. This is a really interesting way. Obviously, if you had a, um, a marsh system on your on your property and you're able to make a little money off of it, that could be a really uh, interesting uh, appeal uh, to marshes, <laughs> which usually kind of get the short end of the stick, I feel. Uh, so how, have, how are you uh, getting out into the community and talking to people about this program? Well, I mean, I think reaching out to the private landowners is one of the most exciting things that we've done. Uh, we've, uh, we've studied now for many years the different voluntary carbon markets, both in the United States and around the world. And we really think that they are dysfunctional when it comes to being beneficial to private landowners. Uh, they're very, some of them almost seem punitive in the way that they approach the use of land. Um, with some of the standards, you get disqualified if uh, you're making income from sources other than carbon storage. With other of the standards, um, if over 15% of the people are using the same management concepts or the same practices, that you don't qualify. And existing carbon storage does not qualify under many of the standards. We have uh, basically set up a system that doesn't have those restrictions. We have set up what we call a red state landowner-friendly system. We respect property rights. And we believe that there is a tremendous market that is going to emerge for carbon dioxide storage. And we want to get started with different concepts and get them underway. And so uh, rather than frankly convincing one of the existing standards to uh, make a uh, accommodation for our approach, which has been very, very hard to negotiate, we just decided we would just get started and offer this primarily to individuals, smaller corporations. And of course, if a larger corporation wanted to participate, we'd be thrilled. But our um, 
our buyers are basically considered donors. Uh, we are a nonprofit. We don't do not sell the product. We are asking for those that wish to sequester their carbon footprint to donate uh, an amount of money equivalent to $20 per ton that they wish to uh, sequester. Uh, that will be a donation that is tax deductible to what we um, we have a 501c3 application that is pending. So it is a hope that we will be tax deductible. Uh, we believe that we should be. And then we will be making grants to landowners uh, in the amount of about $17 per ton if they qualify under our program. And uh, we would keep $3 a ton. So we would take about a 15% commission. Uh, that would be for administrative costs. Wow. So what we're talking about here, let's step back a little bit. You're forming a non-governmental organization. This is not a regulatory thing. We're not going to the Texas legislature to you know, impose restrictions on landowners. Uh, the private, this is a private to private exchange between a, an NGO, the Texas Coastal Exchange, and a landowner. Um, and the way it seems to, to, to work is if I'm a member of the public and I care about this issue, I could send you 20 bucks in the mail. And that 20 bucks would be handled by the Texas Coastal Exchange. And you guys would enter a contract with a landowner uh, who agrees to preserve, maintain, or improve or enhance their wetland area, right? And so you're going to contract with these folks. Tell us about the transaction, Jim. Um, what would that look like? What do you anticipate? Uh, the landowner is going to end up with a check here. That's what you're talking about. They're going to get a check. But tell us how that exchange operates. Well, we're still developing the rules for it, but as a general proposition, landowners that wish to participate will be one, will identify themselves to us. And I can, I'll be happy to talk about it. We've already had one excellent meeting down around Matagorda Bay, and we've met with and talked with several of the private ranch landowners down there. And we have several that have indicated interest. But formally, we would ask them to make a grant application, and they would identify of which parcels of land they would like to offer uh, to participate in the program, and uh, they would sign our grant application process by which they make a number of agreements, uh, one of which is to keep the property intact uh, for 10 years from the date of the grant. And then we would make a grant to them, hopefully in the full amount of the acreage and tonnage that we would assign to that property. Um, and we would assign tons per acre on the basis of published literature, uh, we have a uh, coastal uh, uh, a scientist that will be making the assessments based on published literature about uh, how much carbon credit should be given. Right now, we're conservatively allocating about two tons per acre per year uh, for carbon dioxide storage. And at, at $20 per ton, uh, you know, the potentially the income stream to the landowner would be, say, $17 a ton uh, times two, be about $34, $35 uh, an acre. And those would, that would be made in the form of a grant for the total amount of acreage that they have uh, put into the pool. Huh. So uh, that's interesting. So, so you would 
Hmm. Let me see where I can start with this. It's an I've never heard of this contract concept, but the notion of valuing ecological services is what we're talking about here. The notion that that the natural environment and it produces goods and services for society has always been one of the bugaboos in the environmental regulatory universe. Is how do you how do you put a value on these things? And it sounds like the Texas Coastal Exchange is going to attempt to actually assign a value to these things and then execute contracts. As you're saying, you're not buying the land. So anybody out there, you're not giving up your property and you're not even, I understand, asking for a conservation easement. What you're talking about is a contractual relationship where you're going to agree to send these guys a check uh, in exchange for their commitment to the land. Am I following you correctly? Right. But basically what we're going to be doing is making a grant to the landowner for performing a public service of storing carbon dioxide in their soil. And we will find hopefully donors that would make donations that would be used to make the grants to the landowners. And a lot of this you know, depends upon us being able to balance donors with grantees and uh you know, one of the issues we're struggling with is I, I think, frankly, we could probably sign up more landowners than we might have donors in the first year. So we want to be careful not to overpromise to landowners how much money we might have to make grants with. So we've got to kind of get that balanced. Um, and of course, finding the and getting in touch with the donors is a whole nother issue because we're reaching out to individuals and uh, we're really kind of focused here in Houston. You know, people anywhere in the United States, in the world, for that matter. In fact, we've already sold, uh, I think, either 10 or 20 tons to um, a lady in the Netherlands. Uh, so you can buy, you can you can become a donor from any place in the world. Uh, and our website will be set up um, probably by um, end of June, early July a time period. Uh, we would be set up to uh, with a blockchain technology. That would allow a basically a transparent uh, record of the transactions uh, and all of the different donors uh, would be able to kind of track uh, kind of uh, the inventory that we have and how many donors we have up to that point in time. That is a really interesting uh website concept and and nonprofit concept. And I'm going to reiterate that for all of our listeners around the American shoreline that no, you do not have to be uh, in Texas or in this area around Houston to participate uh, in the Texas Coastal Exchange. You just need to go to the website here uh, soon and you'll be able to make a donation uh, in accordance with how much of your carbon footprint you'd wish to offset, which is really cool because, uh, you know, clearly uh, that's the name of the game here in combating climate change, at least in combating the carbon part of it, is going to be to begin to account for. Uh, the costs associated with uh, emitting carbon, and we're not going to be able to turn on a dime and stop emitting, uh, obviously. Uh, that's very, that's just the whole discussion with Catherine Romanak a, a few weeks ago So uh, uh, that our audience will remember. So I think this is a, a smart way for, for our listeners who want to offset their, their footprint to put money into the Texas Coastal Exchange, and they will take that money and put it into protecting marshland uh, on 
private property, but Jim, I have a question here. I see that you are uh, one of your land on on your current website. One of your partners is the Galveston Bay Foundation. Uh, That's correct. We started with the Galveston Bay Foundation, and and we invite nonprofits as well. They are landowners. They are private landowners. Absolutely. Uh, so t- I imagine the Galveston Bay Foundation can offset quite a bit of carbon, given uh, I, I have to, I don't know exactly what their land holdings are there in the Galveston Bay, but I imagine it's sizable. Well, they, they are sizable, and we're in the process right now of just working with one piece of land. The Pierce Marsh is what we started with. And we've evaluated that there's about 1,100 acres of wetlands there. It's about two tons per acre per year. Uh, so, you know, to start with, we have a solid 2,200 tons. And uh, Kirksey Architects in Houston actually uh, made a commitment to sequester the entire footprint for their uh, firm. And so they became our first uh, really participant. Um, and actually, they they started at the end of 2018 uh, with an initial um, purchase. And uh, when, at that point, we were calling it purchases. Now we're basically moving to the donor grantee framework. And uh, they will continue, I think, for the next uh, four years to become to be a corporate participant and really helped us launch uh, this concept. And then we have made uh, just transactions among friends, uh, basically uh, with a paper ledger. But the system will really get underway when we get the blockchain technology and the ability to pay over the uh, uh, website established, uh, like I said, near the end of June, early July. But I want to talk, if I can, in just a minute about different ways of accessing potential donors. Uh, Getting, you know, like, for example, Houston has, uh, you know, just in Harris County, we've got about 4.4 million people. If 1% of those persons were interested in um, offsetting their carbon uh, footprint, that's about 44,000 people. Uh, Say at 10 tons per person per year, uh, 440,000 tons, uh, that that begins to, you know, to be a significant amount of both money and acreage. But how do we reach those people is the real question. And so we are working with uh, different corporations. We're working with different um, uh, institutions to try to get access to their internal listserv of employees to basically offer this as a uh, system that's been sort of approved or given a a gold star by the company that if uh, employees would like to donate, that this would be an approved way to make a donation and to sequester your your private footprint. Because what we found is a lot of the employees, for example, of the oil companies personally are very committed to carbon dioxide reduction and would like very much to participate, even if their companies are not quite prepared to spend the big bucks to offset the corporate footprint. Huh. Very interesting because you're down there in the energy capital of the United States and in Houston, where major oil company headquarters are located. There are several there. It would be very interesting to see if there was a competition between ConocoPhillips and Exxon and Shell uh, to see what group of employees could offset the most carbon. I I think there's something to that. Well, and the the employees actually may, by taking action, begin to almost... um, uh, shame, perhaps, is too strong of a word, but induce the corporation to perhaps become a little more proactive. Uh, you know, 
stranger things have happened in this day and time. Let me ask you this. So when you guys were trying to build this market-based approach to uh, carbon sequestration, that's what we're, it, it is a market uh, theory operating through a nonprofit. Um, you said you took a look around at some of the uh, carbon markets and carbon pricing uh, approaches around the world. Tell us what you found and what was wrong with the systems. Uh, can you give us an example or two of other car market systems that, that, that you looked into? Sure. Most all of the existing systems, and um, that would include uh, VCS, Verop, the um, gold standard, um, American Carbon Registry. Uh, there, there, there are several existing uh, standards that are out there, all of which uh, are trying in one way or another to meet the requirements of the uh, clean development mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol from back in 1997. Uh, also, you've got the California Carbon Exchange, which is a regulatory program out of California. Uh, each of these have their own quirks and problems, but as a general proposition, uh, it really the, these systems do not treat the storage of carbon like pollution removal. Uh, they really treated more, uh, particularly uh, nature-based storage of carbon, they really treated as we need to reward only new activities. And so there's a concept of additionality that is um, kind of tightly tied up in all of this. And uh, you know, for, for starters, they're only rewarding new carbon dioxide storage. And they're assuming that all the other carbon storage that is existing is ongoing. If I have been a good steward of my land, I cannot now sell my carbon dioxide credits under those systems. Uh, I've got a friend who has restored a native prairie and it's got a beautiful deep root system and it's gorgeous uh, grass and he grazes it. Uh, if you're making income from cattle, uh, you may not qualify under some of these uh, standards. Uh, you can only make money off of carbon and nothing else. They, these standards are almost punitive in the way that they, they approach this. I think because the Kyoto Protocol was really oriented toward punitive. Also, the clean development mechanism was really about transferring wealth and, um, and income to the less developed countries for preserving large areas like putting protection around the Amazon rainforest and places like that. And while I understand that as a reasonable goal, it doesn't work in the United States with our private landowner system. And the United States is land rich. We believe that if you put um, certainly all of the, um, uh, uh, for example, prairie ecosystems, we think can probably take in about 2 billion tons of carbon dioxide per acre, I mean, per year across the United States. And that's about, you know, quarter to a third of the United States uh, carbon footprint. Uh, so the potential is huge, but we have but we have no institutional structure to take us there. And if you get something like the Baker Schultz uh, carbon tax coming along, you're going to set a base price of $40 a ton for a ton of carbon dioxide uh, with uh, that carbon tax proposition. Uh, I think I could probably sell a whole lot of tonnage at 30 to $35 per acre, I mean, for, per ton. Um, to the companies that otherwise would be paying forty dollars a ton in tax. So when that, if that, if that opens up, this market is just going to explode. 
Mm, so much to talk about there. I want to ask a couple of uh, uh, baseline questions, Jim. Uh, you, you talked about two tons per acre per year as 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 one of the units of measurement in in in, in how the contract would be valued. Uh, obviously, a wetland and a timberland and a mudflat or a sand flat or the variety of coastal habitats that we have in Texas, the marshes. Uh, have variable, uh, I would say, must have variable carbon footprint impacts in a positive way. Um, tell us about this $2, two tons per acre deal. Do you expect that to evolve into something a little bit more sophisticated over time or multi that has multiple levels, depending on the type of land that you're contracting to, for? Well, I think to start off with, we're, when we talk two tons per acre per year of uh, carbon dioxide, we're really talking for about um, saltwater wetlands, um, spartina alterniflora for the most part, spartina patents perhaps. Um, but we feel like we have really good uh, literature sources on that for the Texas Gulf Coast. Uh, actually, we think two tons per acre is probably low. We could think we could probably support an award up to four tons an acre, but we wanted to start off conservative. Um, and, you know, so, you know, and again, there's not that much demand right now. So we didn't feel any need to start off by pressing. I, I don't think we're going to have a lot of difficulty with uh, coastal saltwater wetlands and uh, brackish wetlands. Once you move into freshwater wetlands, you begin to get into methane generation issues. And uh, we're right now, we're not we're not awarding any credits for the freshwater wetland systems. Uh, we were considering it, but we're not doing that. Uh, probably the next area we'll go into may be the bottomland hardwood timberlands. We think that the literature values are pretty robust and pretty good for um, for the um, for trees, and so it's a well-researched area. The most difficult of all of the ecosystems will be prairies. There is so much variability in coastal prairies. Uh, there's soil type variability, there is uh, rainfall variability, and there is plant community variability, and then there's uh, management practice variability. On those, we probably we, we, we're, we're researching the literature right now. We've got a graduate student and um, another student are spending much of their summer pulling all of this literature together. And if we can, if we feel like we can come up with defensible numbers, uh, we will be awarding prairie credits later on in the summer or early fall. We probably will award timber credits before that. So I would say we'd go into timberlands next and then into the prairie. The best idea with prairies, though, is to actually require that the soil be tested at time zero, that an estimate be made based on literature, and you could go ahead and begin to have transactions, and then come back at year three or year five and do uh, a second round of testing and do verification of what's there, and then you'll have either to adjust upwards or downwards. Okay, it's measurable. It is Let's measurable. Let's talk about the commitment. So if I'm a landowner and I say, gee whiz, Jim, love this. I've got 100 acres of salt marsh along my ranch land down here in Matagorda County, and I want to put that in the program. I'm going to get 17 bucks uh, per ton uh, and credited two tons per acre. That's that's pretty good. What's that? $3,400 a year, if I'm doing the math right. And I have to sign up for 10 years. That's what you're saying. The grant agreement is 10 years. Um, 
huh, so if I'm a guy who's thinking about doing something with my property 12 years from now, I could monetize this stuff. And after the 10-year time period is passed, uh, I guess if I don't sign up again, I'm free to take out a bulldozer and put in a subdivision. Or, I mean, I'm just asking about the durability of the idea and how you intend on getting a lasting benefit. Um, it's got to be one of the quirkier parts about this. No, it, it's very, very difficult issue. Uh, for starters, uh, the coastal wetlands are protected under federal law. So they're, they are much more difficult to develop than any of the other properties we're talking about. So I think for starters, we're frankly not too worried about um, uh, the loss of coastal wetlands. I mean, it's really only with major industrial developments, uh, pipelines, things like that. And that would be unlikely to be occurring in many of the areas that we're looking at. And so that's part of the assessment that we're making as to which properties we would accept as grant applicants. And many of these properties, uh, Galveston Bay Foundation lands, for example, are protected. So uh, we're you know, obviously less worried about those. Once we get into timberlands and prairie lands, uh, these issues become much more difficult. And the way that the concept is that in year one, if you sell, well, let's say for 100 acres, you sell um, two tons an acre. Let's say we sell, uh, what, 200 tons. Um, that at year one, you, you, get, you get your grant and then you guarantee 10 years that it will be undisturbed. If you want to sell in year two, then you make another 10-year commitment. In year three, you make another 10-year commitment. And so our hope is that as the price of carbon rises, that we will continue to have enough uh, stimulus to keep the landowners into properties. We're really working with larger ranchers to begin with. And these are primarily ranchers that indicate that they have a desire to maintain their lands as ranching over time, but they're all having pressure from either taxes or from heirs to come up with cash distributions. And there's always obviously the challenge, the uh, attraction of quick and easy development money. We're gonna have to have a buffer of, um, of um, credits that we keep available to offset any um, defaults on contracts. Um, and yeah, like I said, our hope is renewals over time will extend those time frames. All right. Let me ask. So that makes sense to me. So you've got a rolling, potentially a rolling 10-year commitment here. It's a rolling 10-year uh, commitment. Year two, you're going to get a check. Let's in the example we're talking about, 100 acres. Uh, the guy's going to get $3,400 the first year. Over that 10-year period, if the price were to remain the same, he's going to get $34,000. That's that's real money. Uh, that might help with your taxes uh, in Texas if you don't have an ag exemption. But what you're saying is the variability and the value of the ton sequestered is, is likely to occur. And I, I think you're correct there. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of what the IRS did last year and what uh, the Congress did with uh, 45Q, the IRS code 40, section 45Q, which establishes a $50 ton payment for secured geologic storage. This is a, a tax credit valuation that's going to go to uh, industrial sources and oil and gas companies and drillers and people who pump stuff down into the deep deep subterranean layers, uh, put cart CO2 down there. But it, that's at $50 a ton in the federal law. Um, you've mentioned a $30 a ton number. When you're looking around at the market, uh, 
are you making any kind of projections on what the value of a ton of withheld or sequestered CO2 is likely to be over time? No, I mean, I think we have stayed out of the speculation business other than to identify these factors. And, you know, of course, we were a little disappointed. 45Q only applies to basically technological storage as opposed to natural storage, which we think is is a mistake. Um, But it also shows a bias uh, really almost against natural systems uh, within the oil and gas industry. They're much more comfortable a lot of times with technology than they are with nature. Uh, and I think many of us are, and it's just a, a whole different way of looking at nature. But back to price, uh, I mean, some of the European countries are already assessing over $100 a ton. Um, and, you know, that's regulatory. I mean, that's, that's a, a much stricter system over there. But I, I have no trouble seeing in excess of $50 a ton. And uh, I have seen data that, that indicate that $80 a ton may be a, a, a reasonable expectation in the future. But, but we're not talking about those numbers at this time. Uh, what we're, you know, at this point, $20 a ton is at the high end of the private market, the voluntary market. Uh, I think we'll be very gratified for a year or two to get $20 a ton. Uh, but I do think that that will change and hopefully we will be able to see our land landowners get uh, larger and larger grants over time. That would be great. And is there any reason why this idea, uh, if someone, a landowner in Louisiana were to approach you guys and say, you know what, I've got some area here, I'd like to participate. Is there anything that would prevent you from setting up or entertaining uh, a grant application from another state? You know, there's nothing at all that would uh, prohibit that. It's just, at this stage, um, you know, we've just kind of we're just getting started. I mean, literally, our website is under development, and uh, we're just going forward. And I would think that we would be open to people from anywhere along the coast, uh, particularly with the the wetlands situation. Uh, local knowledge is important um, in terms of the award of credit, uh, and that's one of the reasons I think as we get into prairies. Uh, it'll be a much more cautious uh, exercise. I think we feel much more secure talking about, frankly, expanding to other states along the coast um, the, with regard to coastal marshes than we do um, talking about prairies or timberlands and other places. Uh, we don't even know enough about our Texas coastal uh, ecosystems to feel comfortable yet. I think we're going to, we'll get comfortable in our backyard and then talk about expansion. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that makes a lot of sense, Jim. Uh, but I, I do, you know, put it out there for the listeners, get, uh, maybe in the next couple months, go check out the Texas coastal exchange. And, uh, if you live in an adjacent area and, or if you have, uh, some natural features on your land that, could possibly capture carbon, uh, there might be an opportunity here to, to partner up with the Texas Coastal Exchange. And we would also, you know, encourage, frankly, similar systems to be established elsewhere along the coast. I mean, we'd be happy to help somebody else develop a system like this. Uh, you know, uh, everything we've got, I mean, we're going to be very open about. And, uh, you know, the more that we have markets created for ecosystem services, I believe the more realistic our economy is going to come. I mean, this is actually the circular economy in practice. Uh, you know, it's almost a mythical thing, the circular economy that has been uh, talked about. But this is it. I mean, this is basically compensating for closing the carbon cycle. 
I'd like I would like to see compensation for closing the hydrologic cycle. I think I think we should in Houston. One of the things that we want to explore is paying landowners for taking a um, St. Augustine lawn and turning it into a native Texas grassland lawn that might hold a lot more rainwater uh, in the soil within the yard uh, within uh, the subdivision. And in that way, if you could have 100,000 or 200,000 houses working to hold water, we might uh, make a small dent in our flooding issue and um, I could pay landowners for that. Then, of course, they'd all be sequestering carbon if we could ever quantify that. Well, you know, Jim, it, it's a uh, bear with me here, uh, but I, th- I see this as being a trend just more broadly. Uh, which is this idea of really trying to work with nature. Uh, And uh, what you were saying earlier about the kind of mechanical carbon sequestration versus uh, what we're talking about here, which is obviously a very natural uh, process, Uh, but it accomplishes the same thing. And uh, there is, in the broader environmental movement, Jim, I think that this is the maybe the next. Uh, this is the discussion that we're having: is uh, is the solution going to be found uh, through uh, natural means and kind of bending our lifestyles in some cases, and all, certainly our understanding of the planet and the understanding of our environments, kind of bending our lives to fit those systems so that they work. Um, or can, or will it be kind of a, a miracle machine, some sort of uh, human invention, a technology that uh, saves us from <laughs> from our own uh, demise here? And I applaud the uh, the take, and I think it's really smart because it gets private property owners engaged in this. And there is, this is really true for anyone. You, your backyard uh, is a place where you can make decisions to improve the environment. Uh, and if you can compensate people uh, for doing right by the environment and capturing carbon, I think that is just a really smart idea. I think the environmental community has been slow to lead to new ideas. Uh, I think many of the positions, many of the ideas have remained unchanged over my career, which goes back to the 70s. Um, and I really think, I mean, I can talk, I've talked ecology in Houston to many audiences over the years. And I have, um, I've actually lost a lot of audiences in downtown Houston. If I talk about ecology and spirituality, if I talk about ecology and my uh, stewardship commitment or what they should have as a stewardship commitment, but if I can talk about ecology and money, I can talk to any of these audiences. And the environmental community has been very slow to recognize that money might actually work for the environment rather than against it. I think we were so conditioned early on to be opposed to money-making schemes as thinking that they were always going to be bad for the environment, that the idea that money could actually be positive for the environment is, is a concept that's very hard to, uh, to swallow. Well, you know, I think you're, on, uh, you're picking up a trend in not just in, in, in this particular idea, 
But when I look around and start to see market applications uh, being developed in response to climate change, what we're beginning to see are the early shapes of potential solutions. This week, the court, uh, BP and Shell pledged a million dollars uh, to a thing called Americans for Carbon Dividends. And this is a Republican-backed lobbying group that supports carbon pricing for polluters with the proceeds being distributed to the American people to offset higher fuel costs. Uh, ExxonMobil is involved in this. ConocoPhillips is involved in it. Uh, Microsoft, Tesla. There's a group of corporate folks that are beginning to push for carbon pricing and carbon market solutions. Uh, and you're talking about a a peer-to-peer setup here that would allow a, a local nonprofit, like a land trust almost, to operate with an intimate knowledge of, of the land in your area and and per, uh, apply these market principles. I, I, it sounds very interesting, Jim, and I think we're at the very beginning of this process of identifying the appropriate market mechanisms uh, to help tackle uh, carbon emissions, CO2 emissions, and climate change. Probably. I couldn't I, I couldn't agree more with you. And I would just say that, you know, part of what we're doing is we got tired of talking about it and basically running down these uh, dead-end uh, channels that we were finding and decided, well, heck, we'd just go out and do it. And so a lot of this is uh, kind of building the plane while you're trying to fly it. And then um, we have been, I mean, we've spent a lot of time studying and have found, uh, you know, frankly, we've made a lot of errors. I mean, we went down a lot of uh, uh, alleys that had no openings, uh, but we've now just decided we're just going to go out and do it. And we're finding an amazing amount of support. The landowners are amazingly supportive. Uh, and these are our landowners, most of whom have turned down. Uh, purchase uh, offers from the federal government. I mean, uh, those of you that know the Texas coast know that uh, there's a lot of uh, private land that has been purchased over the years by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the state of Texas uh, for various types of either wildlife refuges or game management areas, things like that. Um, but many of these landowners that we're working with have turned down uh, the either the offer to buy easements or to buy their land fee simple. They want to keep their private property. They want to maintain their ownership. They want to maintain their control. And they're comfortable, at least so far, talking with us, whereas they've been uncomfortable with some of the traditional means of uh, conservation protection. And so we think in, a, in the long term, this is a fabulous conservation tool. Okay, let me ask you like what the area that I'm interested in, and I hope you get down to South Padre Island, south of, um, of the Mansfield Cut. There are very, very large parcels down there. The Fish and Wildlife Service is uh, in an acquisition mode. Just recently picked up, I believe it was two thousand or three thousand acres on Padre Island, uh, partially funded by the Restore Act and the BP revenues, uh, BP oil spill revenues, but. That is an area that is subject to future development pressure. There's a second causeway proposal being banged around down on uh, down in South Texas. Have you heard from? Are you interested in? Have you gotten that far south? Uh, any chance you could get down to South Padre and snap up some of that? Uh, at least contractually set aside these areas. There, there's some great marshes on the backside of that island. 
Well, I've got to, I mean, those are, those are marshes that we want to uh, take a look at. I don't think those are Spartata alterniflora marshes. And so I've got to figure out, uh, you know, what the uh, carbon sequestration potential is of those particular marsh systems. Uh, algal flats, I don't know what to think of algal flats. Uh, uh, Costanza gave great value to algal flats in the work that he did on valuing ecological systems. Uh, but I'm not sure that I've got a carbon uh, market there. I'm very interested in the South Texas brush country for both the brushland and grassland benefits on that. But again, these are areas that we have not yet evaluated from a, a sequestration standpoint. I could see this, uh, certainly Texas Coastal Exchange expanding all over the Texas coast, if not other coasts. Uh, but we've got to be very careful that what we're offering is the real thing, that there's actually carbon storage in the amount that we're talking about. And again, this is a combination of science research and um, and basically being able to transmit to the public and basically ultimately to be trusted that we are an honest broker uh, in terms of the value of these lands for carbon sequestration. Well, Jim, it sounds very interesting, cutting edge, innovative. Uh, I've come to expect that from you uh, down there in Houston. And I hope folks around the country are also, uh, their interest is peaked a little bit here and maybe uh, can I give I can think you... of a lot of places along <laughs> the American shoreline where this could work. I think New Jersey's got some good marshes. Come on, Boy, New the Jersey. Carolina coast. Carolina. I got Carolinas. Yeah, I would think the Carolinas. Uh, certainly, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Uh, I mean, I, I would think that this, you know, might have some legs all around the country. Um, and I would just encourage those of you that are you're listening, that are in other parts of the country, if you want to get hold of me. Uh, um, yeah, is it okay if I get my email address out? Yeah, do all of the contact stuff and how people can follow up with you, Jim. That that's what we're here for. Sure. Um, I'm at Rice University. I'm in the civil engineering department. Uh, they only gave me eight letters in, whenever I was getting my email a long time ago at Rice. So I am Black Burr, B-L-A-C-K-B-U-R, at rice.edu. Um, uh, the Texas Coastal Exchange, I believe, is texascoastalexchange.org. Uh, just Google it up. TexasCoastalExchange.org. Yeah, and, and so that this thing is at the very early stages. If you're interested as a landowner or as a donor, uh, Jim, it's good to see you jumping off the uh, jumping off the cliff a little bit and act of faith here to create an entire new market for carbon storage along the Texas coast uh, using coastal wetlands as the foundation. And that sounds pretty cool to me. Well, that's what we're trying to do, and it is a so it's an effort of love. I mean, I've, I've fished the Texas coast. The marshes are, frankly, uh, that's my spiritual center on the coast. If I could figure out a way to help keep these marshes in place um, for more than my generation, I'd be thrilled. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Blackburn on the board of directors for the Texas Coastal Exchange working on a positive market-based landowner cooperative system of carbon captured sequestration. Uh, if you're interested, texascoastalexchange.org. Jim, thanks for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast. And for those of you, please take time and go to coastalnewstoday.com. You'll find a lot of coverage on topics like this on coastalnewstoday.com. Subscribe and uh 
You'll find this podcast and all the other great shows on the American Shoreline Podcast Network available on Google Pods, Apple Pods, uh, Spotify, Podbean, all the places you get podcasts. Look for us. And Jim, thanks for the time today. And thanks for being on ASPS. My father's and mine was you.